Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. We are continuing, we're steaming through Revelation. I mean, this is like, this is the Usain Bolt of podcasts, Rob. It's almost been a year and we're still, we're almost, we're halfway through the book. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We almost finished the entire New Testament in a year, like we said we were going to do. Two years ago, three years ago. No, it was, it was this year. We, st- we started Mark this year. Uh, I mean, in 2021? In, in, no, in 2023, we started the Gospel of Mark <laughs> and here we are at the end of 2023 and we're finishing up the book of Revelation. We had to that. skip most of the New Testament to do it. We did not start that in 2023, bro. Are you serious? We started that in we did. 2022? I think it was 2021. It was okay. Well, we said we're going to do the New Testament in a year, we, and it took us almost two years. You're right, exactly well, two years, and we had to skip Second Corinthians through Jude. But those books aren't really that important, anyways. No and it's the Gospels, Romans, and like Corinthians, we'll throw that, and then Revelation. So yeah, so so yeah. Second Corinthians through Jude are basically the um th- those are like the 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 numbers of the new testament you know you do you're reading through the bible and you're playing to get to numbers and you give it up that's that's it's, what people do it's the protestant apocrypha <laughs> that's like, no because we uh, we love ephesians right because you have ephesians uh, uh, in the reform yeah, but the know, catholics like 2, maccabees i mean that's so it's, true it's the same thing yeah it's tobit and all that good stuff it's just they're, yeah. they're they're additional books that we find really important we're totally the i don't I want know. to edit this out no right okay we're gonna stop before we get in any more trouble and anyway exactly. so many, uh, let's move on today's topic is <laughs> today's topic is we fit so we finished revelation chapter 11 last week yeah. you said this is one of the high points uh yeah, i'm not gonna is. i'm not gonna say it's the high point because we've already established that chapters four and five were the high point mm-hmm. in a sense this is a different kind of uh another another peak right the, the center of the story it's the central center of the st- part of the story revelation chapter 11 so if you haven't listened to it go back that's the whole that's what the book's all about chapter 11 okay but now this is going to get crazy because chapter yeah. 12 i mean we're on the we're on the precipice of some crazy gnarly revelation 13 stuff we're going to find out who the beast is and why it is mikhail gorbachev oh i thought it was it was Reagan, my bad. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, so had to, had to had to delete all that stuff out. Because <laughs> we gave the answer out, but it was oh, it was, like, okay. Yeah. I, so we had to, it's funny. Any 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 listener who's under like you know thirties and younger, Mikhail what a chaff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, he had obviously he had that spot in his forehead. So yeah, that was a, that was a freaky spot as a little kid in that time, man. That was weird. Like, <laughs> yeah. mommy, what is that thing? Uh, okay, so anyway, Revelation chapter twelve. Um, what is the significance of this section? Because this almost, I don't know, for me, yeah. not that it's divided up into two, but chapter 12 for me, it just in reading the book always seems to have this kind of shift in feel, at least uh, personally. It does. But the key is, so we discussed last time that chapter 11, verse seven, in the middle of the description of the two witnesses, which is God's people who are being sent out to lovingly, sacrificially lay down their lives for the sake of the nations. And that's the means by which the nations are redeemed. But all of a sudden, in the middle of that story, this beast comes up out of the abyss, makes war with them and overcomes them and kills them. You're like, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. So what chapters 12 through 14, especially, well, 12, 1 through 14, 5 in particular, what they're doing is giving us more details about that war. So chapter 12, actually going to go back in time, as far as narrative time is concerned. Hey, let me take you back to before Jesus. Let me take you back mm-hmm. to the time of Joseph. Take you back to the Old Testament story and understand the present story in light of this historical context and then leading up to John's present day, which obviously is, is for us um, also. So what's really mm-hmm. happening then is we're giving more details as, as to the war. So what's interesting about chapter 12 in particular is that sometimes if I'm asked to come in and like do a one day, hey, give us an idea of the book of Revelation, you know, in a quick nutshell, which is really hard for me to do, as you can imagine. I'm just going to start with chapter 12, because mm-hmm. you kind of have the whole story here. And what you get in chapter 12 is kind of this imagery of a dragon chasing a woman. There's war in heaven and the dragon's thrown down. And then we're told explicitly that the dragon is Satan. And then the dragon chases the woman again through the wilderness. And so all you have to do now is go, okay, well, what does a dragon mean? What's the imagery mean? What does uh, a wilderness mean? What's that image? And so you can help people understand the idea of the imagery, because it's a really good chapter to do that with, as well as the whole story. The storyline is it's a dragon chasing a woman, and it's not good. And the woman is the means to which God's going to bring redemption. So uh, we'll get into that as, as, we, as we go. Okay. Dude, this is so weird. My camera just totally is off yeah. focus, and it's really weird. This is so weird. 
Come I liked on, it better when it was blurry, by the way. I know. I looked way better <laughs> when it was blurry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So with all this talk, though, looking ahead at a, a seven-headed dragon and a, a lot of crazy imagery, we've seen imagery so far in the book, but this just gets kind of weird and creepy. Yeah. How do we look at this sort of imagery and, and frame our understanding of the book? Well, it's remember we discussed at the beginning here that an apocalypse, remember the revelation is an apocalypse, but it's also prophetic and it's also epistolary. It's got you know, kind of three genres, a letter, a prophecy, and an apocalypse. Apocalypse are intending to provide the readers an understanding of what's really going on. In the book of Revelation, it's like the Lord's on the throne, not Caesar. So if you think about this, in, in the time of Jesus and the Gospels, Jesus steps into a world where the enemy was like obvious. It was clearly known. It was Rome. And they were, of course, the, like the latest embodiment of the enemy of God's people. Before them, it was the Greeks. And before them, it was the Persians. Before them, it was the Egyptians. You know, the, the history of the Jewish nation is a, a history uh, of the Old Testament people of God, of a people that have been oppressed. And they've been oppressed by foreign en enemies. Jesus comes along and says, you know what, guys? Guess what? I want you to love your enemies. And they're like, what? That's problematic. For Jesus, he comes along and says, yeah, the enemy actually is not, the Ro is not Rome. Rome is the, is the people to whom we are to love. They're the nations that we discussed a little bit before, and we'll discuss more as we, as we proceed. Instead, your the enemy is the devil. He's the one. I had to bind the strong man, in fact, just to enter into his home, uh, which is a really provocative statement there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Jesus comes along and gives us this context of our battle is actually the spiritual, and I hate using the word spiritual because as opposed to like physical, that's not what I mean by it. This, this demonic entity that dwells in another realm of existence that's entered in this realm and he's causing chaos and Jesus has to calm the sea. Jesus has to cast out the demons. Just Jesus has to trample on the waters, which obviously goes back to the Garden of Eden and the story of Genesis 3.15, that you will bruise his, uh, uh, his heel, he will crush your head. It's the seed of the woman, that type of thing. Paul says the same thing also. And Ephesians 6, verse 12, our, mm. our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers, the world's forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, uh, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking some, someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. This is the context that the story of the book of Revelation wants us to put us into now as well. And that is, uh, Revelation 12 is going to remind us that it's actually, it's a cosmic struggle, uh, not with the nations of the world, but the nations of the world are actually being empowered by a dragon. And it's that dragon who stands opposed to the people of God. And he's the one that empowered the beasts to come up out of the abyss to kill the, the, the two witnesses. Hmm. Okay. Let's get into the text. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, just reading the first couple verses. Okay. And it says, so chapters, chapter 12, verses one and two, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Uh, so once again, the first thing we should do is assume that this is going to be symbolic. Uh, this is yep. not literally what's happening, which is interesting because even in a dispensational uh, yes. schema, this is like no dispensationalist who, exactly. who claims to teach the uh, read. This is literal. No one says that this is literally this is symbolic of so they, they no one says this is literal of uh, an event where a woman's giving birth in, you know, out of the sky. But this is going to be symbolic. And, and that's why I like using Revelation 12. Is that like that one lesson? If I'm going to teach Revelation in 15 uh -huh. minutes or 45 minutes, let's do Revelation 12, because everyone's going to agree that this is imagery. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In fact, the imagery actually comes from Genesis 37, verse 9. Mm. And it says in Genesis 37, verse 9, it's talking about Joseph. He, he goes to his parents and his family. Like He had another dream related to his brothers and said, you know, lo, I had another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and the, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Mm. So what you see here, of course, there's 12 stars because obviously Joseph is the 12th. Sure. And, and, but the imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars as representative of the people of Israel or the people of the, the I like to say, as we discussed, the Old Testament people of God is just really, really clear. And then the identity of the sun is obviously clear as well. We'll get to this more detail later on. But in verse five, it says she gave birth to a son, a male child who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. That's chapter 12, verse five. Well, that's a quote from Psalm two. And again, this is another example also of this passage where 
not only is this imagery and the imagery is easily understood because there's an Old Testament context, but then it helps us go, see this Old Testament context? Genesis 37, clearly the woman's Israel. Oh, okay, mm. cool. Or the people of God. Look at uh, Revelation 12, verse 5. Oh, he's quoting Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. In chapter 19, verse 15, which we'll get to later on, the one coming with a rod of iron is the return of Jesus. I mean, there's no question Psalm 2 is applied throughout the New Testament mm -hmm. to be referring to Jesus. He's the son who is the king, the Messiah. So I think that leads us to conclude then that the woman is a collective, a representation of all of God's people. You can say Israel, but I don't like to use Israel here mm -hmm. because it gets really confusing because the woman gives birth to the child and then the woman continues to live. And, and, so, and there's, like, there's a story of the woman after the child. So it's not like, oh, this is just a woman before the child. That's Israel. Then there's Jesus. Then there's the church. No, the woman carries on the story. So if we call her the people of God, it makes it easier to go. That's why there's this continuation, the people of God through Jesus now also. So yeah, let's continue on. Yeah, real quick. Yeah, I know please. that, um, yeah. and this is more of just uh, understanding consensus uh, in terms of identification here. And I know we don't get hung up a lot on identification of things, uh, right, right. but I know that, is this one of those things where there's a lot of disagreement in terms of the identification of the woman? I know that the Roman Catholic Church will mm -hmm. understand woman, the woman as being Mary, obviously right. in a Protestant tradition, that's probably a minority view. Right. Uh, but is there a, a consensus under uh, Christian scholarship on the identification of the woman as just being generally the, the people of God? Or is this going to be, uh, is this something that has a ton of hypothesis? No, you're going to have basically three views. One's going to be some of the dispensationalists, some of the kind of the, the literalists or whatever, who obviously have a problem with, with this passage, because as we discussed, they don't take it literally. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to say the woman is Israel, the nation itself. Okay. So therefore, when she continues after uh, the birth of Jesus, it's the physical descendants of Israel. It's like, okay, that clear, we'll see how later on in chapter 12, verse 17, that that's going to be a problem for them. The second view, of course, the Catholic view, which totally makes sense. Yeah. It's Mary giving birth to Christ and because mm -hmm. it's personified as an individual. But we've seen already the two witnesses are collective. You know, the, the people have got to refer to in, in collective ways. And by, by collective noun, I mean like it's, it's a communal thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like the committee is a collective word. It's a singular noun, right? Committee. The committee is meeting. You actually use a singular verb for the word committee, yeah. but it refers to a group of people, right? So, uh, so that's what the woman is. The problem for the Catholic view, which it makes sense because she gives birth to the, to the Christ child in verse five, um, but is the fact that the woman continues to live after, and, and it's part of the story after verse five. So after the Christ child goes up, she continues on and she goes out in the wilderness and all that good stuff. And Mary doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have basically the, everybody else, the Protestant scholarship and, and, and you know the non-dispensational, which is the majority of scholars overwhelming, would say this is uh, um, a collective noun for the people of God. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, verses three and four. Okay. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she, uh, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Mm -hmm. So this gets, uh, there, there's a couple of questions that are, that are happening. Here, but, yeah. uh, well, well, first off, this is oftentimes used as a passage to describe it, it's funny oftentimes with dispensationalists all because okay. i'm just putting things together that i've heard over time where i didn't realize that wait this doesn't make sense but i've oftentimes heard this growing up in churches this is a description of the fall of the demons mm, right yeah uh and that's why we know oh a third of uh, the a third of the demons yeah, are fallen right, angels yeah. uh and they swept a third of the stars out of the sky Yes. But the thing is, that's also usually taught by dispensationalists who would assume that this is all futuristic as well. Yeah, because well, chapter 12 thing, would right? be futuristic. So, so this chapter also helps us go, This clearly it's going back. This, yeah, this chapter is yeah. going back in time. 
the book of Revelation is not describing simply the future. I think mm-hmm. it is also, obviously the return of Jesus is something I put in the future. Yeah, but it's going back in time. What's happening here is prior to the birth of Jesus, because the mm-hmm. the child in verse five is clearly Jesus. So this woman was with child. It's uh, the people of God or Israel, or you can say Mary if you want. Whether or not the the dragon swept a third of the stars from the sky, and stars represent angels. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that from chapter one and and two. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. This is the only verse in the entire scriptures that indicates a third of the stars were swept out of the sky. Yeah. So if you want to hold to the view that a third of the angels became demons, go ahead. Um, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm just simply saying that this is the only verse that indicates that and what's exactly meant there would be hard to discern at the end of the day. I, yeah. you, and, I, and you might also, be right. But, but also, if you did help hold to a futuristic reading of Revelation, that's going to cause you some issues because you can't have it, your cake and eat it too. Well, you can argue, I guess, and, and we're going to do a we're going to like a special episode in a couple episodes from now on like dispensationalism and understanding the the seven year thing that the, we're going to actually get into that. We'll go into the, the book of Daniel for a week. Yeah, we'll hit that a little uh, today, and like maybe in two weeks we'll do that. But you could say, well, there, this passage is an exception; it's going back in time. You're being kind of arbitrary. You, you yeah. know, you're not you're not being consistent. It, it is going back in time. I'm agreeing with you. Sure, but yeah. you can't simply say that what happens in chapter four is something in the future. Then it's like, why why is that future? But this chapter's not, and they have no yeah. basis for saying so. If if you're looking at this as a narrative, and it's a story that John's telling to describe the reality of God being in control and the nations of the world being in control of the dragon. And, uh, you know, waging war against God's people and this transcends time. No problem at all. Yeah. John can yeah. leap forward and backwards. Yeah. So yeah. back to the dragon. And it, we just spent time talking about the woman. Oftentimes what uh, Paul, what John does in the revelation is he has contrasts on things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. We'll see this a lot, especially as the book develops with kind of an unholy trinity versus this holy trinity that we've yep, already yep. seen laid out. How, how might he parallel the woman and the dragon? Yeah. Okay. Very good. So when you refer to the unholy Trinity, whatever you you have, Satan is the great imitator, Mm -hmm. right? Remember Satan cannot create, uh, only God can create. So what Satan does is he imitates and, uh, God. And so you have this, the dragon, the beast, number one, beast, number two, all seem to have elements or features of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, the dragon. And so when you're reading the text like this though, now the dragon steering actually is in contrast with the woman here. So in chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 12, verse 3, both refer to a sign appeared in, in heaven and a great sign. So you saw a, a great sign appeared in heaven in verse 1, and then in verse 3, you see a great red dragon. Okay, But you have sign appeared, heaven, and great all being repeated. So that's, there's your first thing that we'll have a little bit of a contrast between this woman uh, um, and the dragon. Now, as far as who the dragon is, I, I would actually go back to what we did at the beginning of this year. Right, Vinny? Um, sure. Rob. Our study of the Gospel of Mark, which was almost a year ago. Um, <laughs> and change. Uh, yeah. <laughs> our, our last session we did on that with Dr. Jace Broadhurst, we brought him in to discuss uh, the imagery of dragons and, and this mm-hmm. mythological imagery that's being used in the scriptures. I, by the way, when I teach at the, at the university, I go, you know, we're doing creational stuff or whatever. And I say, hey, are, are dragons in the Bible? And the students are like, I don't know how to answer that because... You know, especially the ones that you know went to a Christian school or whatever, and they kind of had this young earth kind of like they they can't be, but you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like they're all over the Bible, and obviously here, you know, Revelation chapter twelve, what you have is the dragon being depicted as I'm sorry, what you have is uh, Satan being depicted as a dragon, and we know that the dragon Satan because it says so in verses eight and nine, okay, and so Tremper Longman notes that multi-headed dragons represent forces of evil and chaos against whom God fights. This is just common in the ancient world. Uh, the imagery goes back to the picture of Lothan, the seven-headed sea monster against whom the god Baal fought, according to Canaanite mythology. Right, now, what's actually interesting, though, is not just that the other gods are depicted as dragons. In the Enuma Elish is one of the more famous examples, where Tiamat is a dragon, and she has to be cut in half and chopped in half to be defeated. And you see the creation account, and she's actually the goddess of the waters. She, she roams the waters. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 1, God separates the waters. First, he separates waters above and water below vertically, and then he separates waters from side to side so he creates the dry land. God's separating Tiamat, and, and it's this old creation kind of language of the ancient Near Eastern world that actually it's, it's going, I think that's what's happening in Genesis, and some might disagree. But nonetheless, but you also have the imagery of the dragons then being per- applied to human rulers. 
So Pharaoh is referred to as a serpent. Remember Moses puts his staff down and it becomes a serpent mm -hmm. and serpent dragon. Actually, the words are interchangeable. Isaiah 27 verse one uses serpent dragon, um, uh, uh, inter the words interchangeably. But Pharaoh uh, and his people do the same thing. His magicians do the same thing with, with their staff. But Pharaoh in Ezekiel chapter 29, verse three, it says, uh, speak and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers. So the idea of ancient kings and ancient rulers being depicted as dragons is also throughout the scriptures. And uh, the Bible Project has a wonderful podcast on dragons. By the way, I have like 20 episodes or more mm -hmm. on dragons, uh, which is phenomenal. And that, they might even still be coming out as, as we speak here in 2023. The end of our one year look at the Bible. So uh, speaking of that, I just looked it up. I, I had our fact checker that we oh, have, did you? Uh, okay, cool. yeah, uh, you, you know, behind the glass with our producer and director, yeah. all the people yeah, yeah. behind all, the all scenes the, who the make staff, this great The large thing. staff that we have. The, the staff here at Determined Truth. Uh, and so the episode uh, with Dr. Jace Broadhurst appeared on January 25th, 2022. Oh, oh so, so so we backdated it. We backed it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. How, how to make sure facts always fit with your, with your theory. Exactly. Right? There's, there's exactly. always, the, well, we, uh, we did it in 2023, but we just backdated it. Big, so exactly. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, so that's why I've never been wrong yet. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so, my own mind. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, verse four, it, it yeah. says uh, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Uh, yeah. So is this, is this merely referring to what Jesus did on the cross is this good. Obviously if Jesus is here, is this referring to his whole life? Like how, how should we interpret this? Yeah. That's actually one of the interesting statements here in the book now, right? Because you have the statement that seems actually, I think if I'm not mistaken, I bet you the majority of scholars would say this seems to fit more with Herod's decree to mm, have all the children okay. in Bethlehem wiped out when Jesus was, you know, less than two years old or whatever. Um, you could apply it to, uh, the, the cross, because I mean, what's interesting is the next verse simply says that the child was snatched up to God into his throne. So yeah. you go from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus. So if you want to read this in light of the death of Jesus, maybe, you know, there's your birth, death, and ascension. But clearly the resurrection is omitted here. It's assumed, which is interesting because usually apocalyptic imagery, no, I guess I wouldn't even say usually because there's, there's examples, obviously, in the book of Daniel, where it's a, applied to a very specific situation. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 seems to, or 10 and 11 at least, seem to have a very specific ap application to it. So I guess I, that, that's not an exception. It's kind of common sometimes. Hmm, okay. Chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, we move on. Yeah. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So now we get into some numbers, uh, which we've already, we had a whole episode on this a long time yeah. ago, and we'll talk about numbers a little bit today, but this is going to be symbolic of something, right? The time frame. Yeah. The time frame. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll address the time frame briefly now, and then we'll do an episode on in two episodes. Uh, three and a half years mm -hmm. is a, or, or just the number three and a half. And 1,260 days and 42 months and time, times, and half a times are the three time frames used in chapters 11 and 12, and then even into 13. Mm -hmm. And those three time frames all refer to a three and a half year period, basically, coming from Daniel uh, 7 and then Daniel 9. But uh, it's just a period of time during which the people of God suffer. So, yep. Okay. The other thing that's interesting about this text here is that the woman fled into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And not only does it refer to wilderness, but it's a wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Okay. So there it's a, it's a place of divine protection. Remember the, the, the temple in revelation chapter 11, we didn't really get into it much, but verses one and two, the temples measured. And that signifies the divine protection of that, which is measured. The 144,000 are sealed signifies the divine protection of that, which is sealed. Now the woman is in the wilderness where she's prepared by God and she's, protected by God. Right? So again, this is the reason why this chapter is so good for teaching just that 45 minute, one hour lecture on, on the book of Revelation, because now you have to go, okay, what does wilderness symbolize or signify? And I guess signify might even be a better word in the scripture. So think of examples of something that happened in the wilderness uh, in the Bible. What are some things that come to your mind, Vinny? I mean, for me, the, the, the significant in the New Testament, especially is going to be Matthew chapter four and Jesus being driven into the wilderness and he overcomes temptation by the devil, but he's ministered right. to, uh, by the angels. Yeah. After okay, his baptism. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tempted by, by mm -hmm. the devil. Yeah. Yeah. The most famous episode, probably in the old Testament, of course, 
uh, is the Israelites, right? Spending of 40 course. years in the wilderness. Yep. Uh, and in the wilderness for 40 years, they're protected by God. So they have a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Remember, fire provides warmth. A cloud provides shade. So that's kind of idea of God's protection or God's provision for them. Every day they get up, there's manna, except for Sunday or except for Saturday. Sorry. Mm-hmm. There's, there's manna on the ground. They get a water from a rock that, according to Paul, followed them, which is funny. It's a place of God's protection, a place of God's provision, but they're also tested in the wilderness, right? The book of Hebrews refers to the time of testing and trials. In fact, they fail the test in the wilderness. They have to stay for 40 years. A wilderness has a lot of significance in its meaning there. And so we got the woman, the woman goes into the wilderness is like, oh, that's where the church presently is. That's where God's people presently are. And there is where they're protected by God, but they're also tried in, in trials and tribulations. In fact, we're about to find out the dragon's going to go in the wilderness and chase after the woman and go, and go after her to, to kill her. They're like, oh, I thought they were protected by God. Yeah, but remember the 144,000 protected by God, but then, they're, then they get killed. Remember the two witnesses get protected by God, but then they're killed. So being protected by God does not mean that we cannot be martyred. Hmm. Yeah. Verses seven through nine. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So one of the things that happens in apocalyptic literature, easy for me to say, in apocalyptic literature is that what's happening on earth is mirrored by what's happening in heaven. It's very common. Although the, the war here is restricted to, the, to a heavenly battle, it's probably not going to be restricted to the heavens at all. It's just the nature of apocaly- apocalyptic language. Right, notice in chapter 11, the war was against the two witnesses. So we're going to keep pointing out the word war. In fact, the war occurs seven times. The mm. word war, the noun war occurs nine times. But the war occurs seven times. And what we've seen in chapter 11, verse 7, the first occurrence was it's against the two witnesses, which is all God's people. Now, it actually also takes place in heaven with Michael and his angels waging war. Now, in case we didn't know it, the dragon's identity is going to be made really clear. Uh, The great red dragon, the ancient serpent of old, he's called, well, two things. He's called the devil, Diabolos, which means the slanderer or the the slanderous one. Um, And then secondly, he's called the Satan, which means the adversary or the accuser. In fact, verse 10 is going to say, the dragon is the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and he's been thrown down. One of the things I would argue is, the question becomes, well, when does this happen? You know, if we're talking about like in space-time continuum, this is a narrative, but this refers to the, a war taking place in heaven. Let's assume it's describing something that actually t- transpired in, in some, mm-hmm. at some point in time. And the dragon's kicked out. Like, well, when does he get kicked out? Well, here's what I would notice, and that's this. The dragon is actually never in the New Testament. He's never in heaven. This is the only exception. This passage here is the only time in the entire New Testament that the dragon's in in heaven or Satan's in heaven, and it's describing the time when he gets kicked out of heaven. So aside from that, he roams the earth seeking whom he may devour. He prowls about, as we read earlier, as a lion, and uh, he's the one who wages war. He's tempting God's people. He's uh, influencing Peter. He's influencing Judas. Paul says we have an adversary. And according to this passage is, by the way, not only is he getting kicked out of heaven, he's only on the earth and he's waging war against God's people because he knows his time is short. So the question becomes like, well, when does this happen? So my theory, and I'm just going to propose this as a theory, this is, this is not, this is going beyond, you know, what the text says is that in the old Testament, he's the accuser who goes before God, like the book of Job, he goes before God and he says, hey, you know, here's what I'm thinking. You know, this guy's getting kind of off, kind of free type of thing. And what I suspect happens, and I'm not certain of this, and I don't think the text actually tells us this, is that Satan is accusing God of like, hey, you can't let that guy in. You can't let, you know, you can't let that woman in. You can't let those people in. There's never been redemption. What are you doing? That's unjust. How can you give these people a free pass in the, you know, let's call it paradise. Now, in the paradise, when there hasn't been atonement. But once the cross has happened, now Satan has no more ground of accusation. So the one who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down because of the cross. And if that's correct, it fits with what we said in chapter one, that the book of Revelation is describing things that are transpiring since the resurrection of Jesus. It's about Jesus 
and the significance of his death and resurrection. And one of its significances is, is that's easy for me to say again, is the devil's been kicked out and he's really, really angry because he knows that his time is short. Let me ask you a question on this. Uh, you mentioned that there's no time in which the you know Satan is in the New Test uh, is in heaven in the New Testament. Every time I read Revelation 12, I instantly think back. I think back to the Gospels and to Luke chapter 10. Okay, yeah, there you go. Yep. And and I I always just yeah. read this as a parallel account where exactly. Jesus sends his 72 yep. out to do ministry. They come back and they're excited because they yep. even had authority over, you know, the, the demons. And Jesus says they return and, and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in, you, in yep. your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and yep. nothing shall hurt you. Do you think that these are, are paralleling the same account in these in, I, I in do. chapter I do. 10 and Revelation 12? Because that's the way I, I understand them. Uh, I do. I think so. And what you read was Revelation 10 verses 17 through 19, right? Correct. Um, okay. Okay. So the question becomes, well, how do you deal with Revelation 10? Well, I'm sorry. How do you deal with Luke chapter 10? Because Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Again, he's falling from heaven. He wasn't, you know, he's not being described as being in heaven. He's being described mm -hmm. as falling from heaven. And the question is, is, is Jesus seeing something that's about to happen? Namely with the cross, Satan's kicked out of heaven. They're mm -hmm. taking us to Revelation 12. Or is Jesus describing that with his incarnation, with his actual coming mm -hmm. yeah, and the beginning of his ministry, maybe with the baptism of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit to anoint him there, that that is the moment where Satan... And I think the answer is it doesn't matter per se. It's kind of like... And here's what I mean by that. It's kind of like saying, when did the kingdom of God begin? Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God, of course, begins with Jesus being the king. That's the whole idea of the kingdom, that God's the king, God's kingdom. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Well, you can say Jesus' kingdom begins at the birth of Christ. He's the king, and the wise men come and recognize him as the king. It's clearly this kingship passage. Luke's uh, description of the, the birth narrative in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 is describing Jesus uh, as the great king, as another David, the one the coming of David there. And uh, John the Baptist is, how come I can't think of his name right now? John the Baptist is Elijah. The, prophet, no, the prophet that anointed um, Sam, Samuel. Oh, so John, oh Samuel. Okay. So, so Luke chapter Sorry. one describes John the Baptist in Samuel language, and uh, you know his father is silenced, just like uh, Samuel's mom was silenced in the, in the temple praying and in the temple praying, and Samuel anoints the new king, and John the Baptist anoints the new king. So you can say the king began at the birth of Jesus. You can say it began at the baptism of Jesus when he's anointed by the Spirit, because that's what the anointed one is, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. Mm -hmm. uh, you can say, of course, it's on the cross when he's clearly crowned as the king, you know, his name above the cross is Jesus the Nazareth, king of the Jews. They wrapped him in a purple robe for a little while. They had a crown of thorns. And I said, you know, the, the gospel stories are emphatic that Jesus is crucified for being the king. And that's when he became the king. Or you can say he became the king at the ascension because he sat down at the right hand of God. The point then is all of the above, right? You can say the kingdom of God began with all of the above. The kingdom of God's at hand. I think the same thing would be that would be when did Satan get kicked out of heaven? You could say it's, it's one, one package. The birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus all lead to the expulsion of Satan from heaven. So mm -hmm. you can say Luke 10 is, is proleptic, which means Jesus is looking ahead to something that's about to happen. Uh, like the vision of the great multitude in chapter 7, it's proleptic. I see this great multitude in heaven and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a looking forward to something that's about to happen. Or you can say, no, Satan was cast out of heaven because Jesus bound him, threw him into the abyss. That's how he started his ministry. We'll get to that in Revelation 20. And I think either way. So that's a long way of answering the question. I think, does that help or any thoughts? Yeah, on yeah, that? yeah. No, I, well, I mean, my thoughts are, I can't help but read it as an all, in terms of Jesus's timeline, him seeing this as an already. Some people argue that when when Jesus says, I saw this, he's speaking in the future, which I, I, I'd i have to look in the Greek to see if there is a, a future form of of that, if, or if that's what's indicating. But he seems to be speaking to the of the causation of why the disciples were able to do what they did. Mm -hmm. I right. saw that this had happened. Therefore, the results are you get to do this. And so for yeah, yeah. like it just from a, a, a grammatical standpoint, it seems to be speaking of something that he had already seen. Like I seen this happen. Yeah. Uh, if, we're, yeah. if we're to use it that way. I, I'm good with that. I'm good with that, especially with the binding of the strong man in Mark chapter yeah. three. Yep. Um, yep. And then that's carried on. That's something important here also. And that is 
in um Revel and Romans 16, Paul says, I've given you authority to trample yeah. on serpents. Yep. Right. And this kind of goes back to what we I was thinking of talking about here at the beginning, and that is this. Sometimes I don't know if this if ever ever you ever struggle with this, whatever, but you see a level of complacency in the churches, you know? Yes. People who come to church every Sunday, you know, you're a pastor in a local church. Yeah. They, they come to it's like, why won't you come to class? Why won't you come to a Bible study? Why don't you get more involved? We have a prayer meeting, we have a a, a, a soup kitchen or a feeding program or gifts exchange or helping the poor out. You know, you you know, you come and you're like, and what I see in Revelation 12 is John framing this Christian mission, which is chapter 11, right? The two witnesses, that's the mission. Go make God known to the world by loving your neighbor and laying down your life for them. And he frames it in the context of, oh, and guess what? There's a dragon out there and he's at war with you. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be complacent, well, guess what? The devil's not going to stop waging war. He's waging war and, and it's bad news. And so it just gives us a sense of the urgency of the moment the importance of the moment, the importance of relying upon the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's whole argument in Ephesians 6. The battle we wage is not against flesh and blood. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. It, it's a sense of urgency and importance to discipleship and growing in the likeness of Jesus because there's an enemy who's trying to devour you. So mm, just to chime in on that, I think yeah. one of the issues, one of the reasons why we come up against this, you call it complacency. And it probably is that in a sense as well. Yeah. I think a lot of this is the the effect of the individualization of how we yes. read scriptures. Totally. And so even like you had mentioned, like love for one another, like this whole time I was thinking of even something like a first John three. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was reading that this week and okay. there, there's these great exhortations yeah, yeah. for, you know, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him, there is no sin. Don't keep on sinning, little children. It's this type of idea. So we automatically think of sinning as an individual, right? Yes. yes. I need to, I need to practice my personal okay, yeah. piety, which is good. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. You're going to keep reading that. in first John three though, aren't you? But that's the thing. If, if you keep yeah, reading yeah. in first John okay. three, he yeah, tells yeah. us what practicing sinning means. It's not exactly. loving one another. <laughs> and that's yeah, like, don't be ultimate... like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his <laughs> exactly. brother. Yeah, exactly. And so this yeah. thing is like, he's giving us the, the strongest example. It doesn't mean, you know, don't yell at your wife in private. It doesn't mean, you know, don't look at porn. It, like, yes, those things are true, but it does mean it, that. <laughs> it does mean that. Yeah. We're not giving an excuse for those things, but, but first right. and foremost, it means, are you loving one another? Which right. in first John, this is just, this is just Jesus language. Like the world yeah. will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. What are the yeah. greatest commandments? So love God and love others. Like we, we so think we could graduate from this because it's just simple. This is what you teach in VBS on flannel graphs. And it, it, as someone who loves, you know, I, I'm, I'm very reformed. I, I, I'm very Protestant in my thinking. This is yeah, where yeah. you and I would even differ in terms of like our ecc ecclesiological bents in, in some ways. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. Where where I may I'm more sympathetic to that, but this is where it's like, guys, we get this wrong because all we're focusing on is the personal sin thing, yes, and exactly. we're not looking at the corporate. Like, what does this actually look like? And we're just so easy to skim past this. Uh, so I think that causes complacency because who cares about what I need to do? Love my brother. I just need to work on my own stuff right now. Well, yeah, there's two things. Let me add. Let me add. Just keep reading First John chapter three for just a second, verse verse sixteen. We know love by this that he laid mm -hmm. down his life for us, and we yeah. ought to lay down our lives for our so, brothers and yeah, sisters. Because he did yeah. this, so you do this as well. Yeah, it's exactly. Connected. And it's they'll know you're Christians if you love one another. And here's what love lo yeah. one another looks like. It looks like laying down your life for them. Verse 17, if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and close your heart against them, how does the love of God abide in that person? Yeah. You know, and it and it goes on. So yeah, uh, homework for everyone listening is read first John chapter three and even chapter four. Um, yeah. but the second thing about that, also the individualization of it is that we've made this about salvation and not yes. about discipleship or Christ-likeness. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not only individualism, and that is, Vinny, accept Jesus into your heart, which I think is true. That's why I, I use the moniker evangelical, because that's that's a hallmark of evangelicalism. We need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't necessarily discount other, others per se, but the idea then is, well, I'm saved. Therefore, I'm good. You know, and you know, and we believe in eternal security, right, Vinny? So th therefore, I know where I'm going to go when I. Everything else is bonus material. It's an, it's an add-on, mm -hmm. and it's just no. This isn't bonus. This is the essence of Christendom, and that is to grow in the likeness of Jesus. And oh, guess what? You have an enemy who's going to do everything he can to make sure you don't. And one of those ways he's going to do it is he's going to deceive you to think I'm good. I don't have to worry about anything because yep. I'm going to heaven when I die. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
I want to sing the the. It's feeling kind of creepy. What's the the Adams family? Oh my gosh! Da 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 da. Da da da. See there, there you go. go. Yeah, I just needed some help. Yeah, I needed a lot you, of help. You definitely shouldn't sing. I've got rhythm. <laughs> no, I don't know if you do. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right, all right. I, I got to sing. I don't. I don't know. See, I only know like one word or like one line of a song. That's my next problem. The. And exactly. I only the problem. I love songs. I only remember the conjunctions. Okay. Okay. Though. okay. Ready? Yeah. Ready. All right. So bring this back to you wanted to so bad. I, I wanted you to wanted to so bad because all I could think of that one time. I could see you thinking about doing it because we there was that one time we had like a fifteen minutes where we could not get anything done because of yeah. giggle fits, and I'm like, I'm not going to give into this. Not today, <laughs> Satan. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I got him. <laughs> you put the target practice slide back up. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. This is my serious face. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So let's bring it back to the text. Let's bring it back to uh, Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent of old. Mm -hmm. So if one of the chief characteristics that we see of this devil is that yeah. he is a deceiver, how does this impact how we understand the war that okay. he wages against the people of God? Okay, this is really critical. Very good. When we think about the two witnesses being killed by the beast who makes the war against them and their bodies lie in the street of the great city, we tend to think of, oh, that means, we may have said this, alluded to this last week, and that is, it means, oh, Christians are going to be persecuted, they're going to be put in prison, they're going to have laws against them, like in the book of Acts, where they can't speak in the name of Jesus, so they're going to get beaten and maybe imprisoned. The primary weapon of the devil is deception. Hmm. That's his chief weapon. And throughout the New Testament, what you see constantly is watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but in one of their ravenous wolves. You see this over and over again, even in First John, in chapter four, to see they're, whether they're from God, because false prophets are gone in the world. And here's how you know the spirit of God, and it just kind of go, goes on. So you have this throughout this, the New Testament that it seems like the most powerful enemy of the church is deception. Now, we got to be careful about this. And I talk about this in my, at the university with students. We talk about the truth and is there truth and how do we know if there's truth or absolute truth. And the problem is that truth gets weaponized. Okay. So what I'm referring to here is the fact that deception is the primary weapon of the enemy, even throughout the book of Revelation. And that's what causes the persecution and suffering of God's people. We need to be aware of it. That's why the first beast, and I'm sorry, the first seal of the seven seals was a rider on a white horse who looked like Jesus. And I said, this is a false prophet. And what do false prophets do? They provide ideology and beliefs that, that promote war. And that leads to the second uh, beast or the second seal. And then the third, the third seal is, is famine. And the fourth one is death. This is what happens. False ideology is always first in false understandings. That's why in the um, letter to the church in Thyatira in chapter two, you had this prophetess who, who Jezebel was a, such a threat because she was undermining the very fabric of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, the fifth and the sixth trumpets are demonic agents. They're agents of deception. The second beast is called the false prophet. Deception is the weapon of the devil. And the problem with that is that we so strongly in the Western church think, well, we have the truth and everybody else is deceived. But the deception that the devil wages is inside the church. So we have to be careful about assuming that we've got it all right all the time. I believe Jesus is the truth, but I also believe that we are subject to being deceived because of going back to the, the, the parable of the sower, because of comfort or power or pleasure or privilege or so that we don't have to get persecuted. And so what I encourage people to say, we need to at all times be discerning what the truth is and be willing to change in accordance with the truth, because the truth is only going to lead me to better understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the truth, and that I can be assured of. Everything else, 
And that's what we call this ministry, as we said before, you know, determine truth. Our goal is to determine what the truth is. We got to be careful about weaponizing it. So that's the, the, the key here, though. And that is that the dragon is the deceiver. And that's his primary, primary weapon. Good. Uh, verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Well, let's get, these seems to be uh, continuing these things. Uh, in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. In yes. th- three, or verse 3, uh, another sign appeared in heaven. So you have these pronouncements that are happening uh, for heaven. In verse 7, a war arose in heaven. So now, in uh, right. should we, should we, is this a literary device that uh, John is uh, seeming to do for to transition move the story yeah. along? Okay. Yeah, okay. Sure. And I heard with a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they lo- for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice. O heavens right. and, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay. So let me kind of go to the end first and then I'll kind of go back to the beginning of this section. I'm not sure if, I'm, if I interrupted you, if you're going to ask a question or. No, no. Or, okay. Verse 12. Oh, heavens. We have to be careful about thinking with this uh, um, divide between heaven and earth, spiritual mm-hmm. and physical. Heaven is where God's people dwell. In other words, that's where we dwell also. So it's not just the heavens uh, and you who dwell in them. It includes us also. Uh, we're the, the earth dwellers, the phrase the earth dwellers in the book of Revelation always refers to the people of the world and it does not include the people of the church. We come from the nations, but we are not of the nations. And the word earth dwellers, it's one word in Greek, specifically refers to the people of the earth who receive the mark of the beast and, and deceive God's people. So that's the fir- first thing, you know, so rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but oh, but war of the earth. And guess what? We live on the earth. So therefore, uh, yeah, we're in trouble. Okay. Now, what we just read is a three-part hymn, and it's really significant. You know, chapter 11 was under, important for understanding the story and how the story climaxes, you know, in the two witnesses, and that's the, that's the essence. Right. Now we're realizing, okay, there's an enemy of God's people, that enemy of God's people is not per se the beast as much as it is the dragon, as we'll learn in chapter 13, that empowers the beast. But guess what? First part of this, of this hymn is the kingdom of God has come. Rejoice. The second part is they, they overcame him. And I noticed your translation said, I think they conquered him. Really important again to note that the word for, this is the word for overcome. And this is probably our primary definition of overcome. We'll get to in just a second. The third part is then rejoice, O heavens. So the kingdom of God's come, they overcame, and then rejoice, O heavens. Now, the second part is what's really, I think, critical for us to understand also. And that is they overcame him. And the word conquer is certainly fine because it's kind of a military term. But as long as we recognize it's the same Greek word, nakao, that's behind it there. Mm -hmm. And what overcoming is... Well, in chapter three, they overcame by imitating Christ. If you overcome as I overcame, chapter three, verse 21. Chapter five, we learned that the lamb overcame by being the lamb that was slain. And now we hear that they overcame, and it's a threefold means of overcoming. First, by the blood of the lamb. Second, by the word of their testimony. And third, because they did not love their life even until death. And so I think this becomes really significant for understanding what it means to overcome. And that is by the blood of the lamb, Overcoming the way Jesus overcame by means of death. By the word of their testimony, it means they faithfully proclaim the word of God. And as we said last week, not just what we say, but how we live. Go back to 1 John chapter 3 that we read earlier. Uh, And then third, oh, and they didn't love their life even until death. Ah, the two witnesses are slain. So what's happening here? is in chapter 12 and then 13, the beginning of 14, is John's putting a context of, hey, you guys are God's witnesses. You guys are the ones that are called, and and obviously it applies to us, but he's speaking to his readers in the seven churches. You're called to go out and make Christ known. But guess what? There's an enemy. Now that enemy's defeated. He's already been kicked out of heaven, but that only made him angrier. He's defeated and he will face his demise. But in the meantime, God's put you in the wilderness where you're going to be protected by God and given provisions. It's a place prepared by God. It'll be great. But guess what? The dragon's going to come out to that wilderness. He's going to pursue you. That's verse 13. We'll get to in a minute. Uh, He's going to pursue you. And as a result of his pursuing you, you will die. That's what the two witnesses, the death of the two witnesses. But that's how we overcome. And then on on a segue here, Vinny, and that is 
uh, you, you might be familiar with a famous a quote by Tertullian, I think it was, who said, the blood of the saints mm -hmm. is the seed of the church. Mm -hmm. that, and what Tertullian was saying, like, he was writing to a Roman emperor. He's like, hey, writing to the emperor saying like, why are you killing us? It was during a time of persecution. He's like, we're like the people you want in your empire. We're good people. We love our neighbors. We pay our taxes. We do charitable work. You know, we're the very type of people you want in your empire. Why would you kill us? And then his, his point was, and by the way, if you think killing us is getting rid of us, actually that doesn't work because when you spill our blood, it just puts another seed in the soil and only another Christian and more Christians are going to grow up as a result of this. This is how the church grows historically. When we die, persecution becomes the means uh, of establishing the church. Okay. Now I said, we're going to get to verse 13 in just a minute, but I have a feeling it'll be in our next episode. What do you think? I think so too. Okay. So it'll got, be just I, a minute if you're listening to this like some other time and then you turn on the next episode. That's what I meant. All right. So we're going to leave off here. We're not finishing out the chapter. So we still have verses 13 mm -hmm. through 17. And it, this still seems like part of the same scene. Yes, it is. Because uh, it's still talking about, you know, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. So this is clearly yeah. part of that. But this is going to be a section where you might have a, a paragraph break or something like that in our yeah. Bibles and how they typeset mm -hmm. it out. What are some ways that we need to remember that this is still part of the same section uh, and, and what should we, we remember when we jump into this next time in terms of to recall what we learned today? Uh, phrase that question again, try it again. Okay. When we continue on in this next week, okay. what, what is the, th the primary thing that we need to remember that sets the stage for the, you know, bridging into this next section, which is still part of the same exact scene. Okay. Well uh, that, yeah, you have a really, really, really angry dragon who's now going to go out to the wilderness and find out where that woman is and do everything he can to destroy her and bring her down hmm. um, and even killing them and persecuting them and deceiving them. I think that's really the key. And I think the American church has, has been, we've really been deceived in a lot of ways. And, and that's something for us to discuss in future episodes also. So we have an enemy and we have to take that, that enemy seriously because he's taking it seriously. So next time we will continue and we'll finish out chapter uh, 12. Yeah. And we're also going to start jumping into Daniel chapter nine, which means go ahead and read that in preparation. Mm. If, if you're listening at home or in the car, yeah. I guess, uh, and, and Daniel chapter nine, that's a very difficult passage. I mean, I think we're going to hit a couple of sections of uh, Daniel, but just become familiar enough with this very, very difficult text. I mean, is Daniel nine on the Mount Rushmore of most difficult chapters in the Bible to, <laughs> to read and um, understand? You think so? Uh, well, I don't know. The, the last part of it is, yeah, right? the, yeah, yeah. the part that's in discussion. It's it's up on the top of it. If it's not on the Mount Rushmore, it's on the hillside on the way up, okay. up the mountain. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And right. that will that's the key passage for dispensationalism and yes. the seven-year tribulation whole idea. So, yeah. Yes. Okay, good. All right, everyone. Keep reading. Hope to see you guys next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.